Um, so, okay, well, well, we'll go through. Well, no, I'll do, I'll do my confession because I have a confession. So, so there are some psychologists in the room, and, and there's a number of non-psychologists in the room, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands so I don't get embarrassed by that. Um, but if you've been, some of us are traveling to the same sessions, and I see familiar faces. And if you have, you know, like you went to Beth Darnall and, and Sean Mackey's talk at 11 that said, there's not enough pain psychologists. And we met together as psychologists uh, yesterday afternoon, and we all said, there's not enough pain psychologists. So the title really should be, I want to make you a pain psychologist. If you're already a pain psychologist, you need somebody else and you're trying to figure out how to manage your time. Most of you are not pain psychologists because there's not enough, there's not this many pain psychologists in the country, much less, I know you're not all here. So you might be kind of, you know, no matter what other discipline you are, my goal is to try to turn you into a pain psychologist. Think of yourself as a, as a, uh, a paramedic psychologist, you know, kind of do some little EMT on the roadside to kind of do what you can. I talked to Kim Breeden, our OT, and I say, you're a psychologist. She's like, no, I'm an OT. No, you're a psychologist. You're in there and you're talking and patients say, oh, and by the way, this and that. And that happens to all of you, you know. Chris is doing PT in Atlanta, and, and, you know, you get people that talk and say, oh, yeah, not only do they reveal stuff about pain, but then they get into their marriage and their traumas and all kinds of stuff. So you're getting stuff dumped in your lap all the time. So we're going to try to give you some skills to deal with that. Um, but if I'd said, please be a pain psychologist, you probably wouldn't have come. So that's the confession. So we'll go over it. Um, so we're still, a, uh, they haven't taken away from us yet, being the center of excellence there at Pain Consultants in East Tennessee, private outpatient pain practice. Uh, still have a contract with Ethos about risk assessment, which doesn't have anything to do with this. Okay, we're going to go over five essential pain coping skills, how each skill is important, and an easy way about relaxation, which is one of the key skills. But they're all key skills. Going backwards, so I'm a pain psychologist, and the traditional referral to a pain psychologist is they're crying in my office, and I don't know what to do. And I've, they're already on an antidepressant, and I can't get anybody to see a psychiatrist. You know, I can't get a psychiatric referral for another three months anyway, so let's send them to the psychologist. So I got a lot of crying people, and they weren't crying by the time they got to me. But we're trying to figure out how to use psychology in a systematic way. So they said, go be a psychologist. And as most pain psychologists... We didn't get trained in it in school, so we're learning on the fly, trying to, you know, what exactly is pain and that kind of thing. Um, so um, my compulsive nature, I start trying to figure out, okay, should I be doing relaxation? Should I be doing biofeedback? I hear that's good. No, no, let's do CBT. Okay, well, let's do that. Um, what should we be doing? And, and a, there's lots of stuff out there. Go to conferences, and there's this and that and this and that. So finally, I sort of ended up with this category system of skills. And these are the skills that patients need. And what I find in my little filtered view is that if you pick up any pain coping book, you're going to find these five general skills. If you got a copy of Beth Darnall's book that she gave out this morning, I've got them tagged of this chapter is what I would call this and that chapter is what I would call that. So it seems to me to fit. And so what I'm going to do is give you the skills, but it's also a conceptual system of looking at a patient and kind of figuring out where to go and where, they're, where the patient might be strong in and where the patient might be weak in so you kind of have some sense of what skills you might be teaching. So it's a conceptual system, and there's no way to validate it or do research on it. I just say, yeah, there's five skills that people need, and take my word for it. So there's five skills people need. And they're general skills, and we're going to go over each one. Um, 
So the three-legged stool of, of pain and healthcare took it from Herbert Benson, who wrote about it 30 years ago. Conceptually, in any healthcare problem and for pain, there's three kinds of things that we as a healthcare system do. There's the interventional approach, the passive patient approach. The patient shows up and you do something to them. That can be acupuncture, it can be surgery, it can be e-stim, it could be manipulation. All they got to do is get there and you do something and they're supposed to be better. And there's all kinds of things in that bailiwick. That, uh, and it's not just uh, physicians, but all, you know, there's all kinds of things. Psychologists uh, have some sorts of, like hypnosis is kind of a passive patient if it's just straight hypnosis kind of thing. So there's the passive patient leg of the stool. And then there's medications, pharmacology, prescribed, non-prescribed. Um, there's all kinds of medicines. You know, put it on yourself once or twice a day. Take this two or three times a day, whether it's over-the-counter or prescribed. Two-legged stools don't stand up. There's a third leg of the stool, and traditionally uh, kind of run-of-the-mill pain clinics just do those first two, shots or pills. And some, some, some places are just block shops, and they just do shots. Some are pill mills, and they just do pills. More reputable people do both, but they often omit the third leg of the stool, which is self-care. What can patients learn and do for themselves to help? Um, a, that's a new concept for some of our patients to like, oh, I've got a role in this. I'm, you know, I'm not the passive recipient of the healthcare system. You're supposed to fix me. No, this is a collaborative effort. Really? Yeah. So self-care skills uh, is what we're going to be talking about so that because those are going to be present whether you have a pain psychologist or not. Five skills. Pain educators tell me I'm supposed to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, and afterwards I'm going to tell you what I just told you. So understanding is the first skill. Have a general understanding. Anytime we get an illness or a disease, several, you know, 20 years ago you go to the library. Now you go to WebMD. Type it in and say, what, spondylolisthesis, how do you spell that? You know, is that fatal? Stenosis, what is that, you know, a psoriatic arthritis. You just try to figure out what it is and then have some education about it. A number of patients do that. Some patients don't do that at all. They just say, treat it. Um, and there's another piece to understanding, which is how is it treated? Okay, I know what it is now, but is it fatal? What do I do? Do I take pills? Do I do this? Do I do that? So understanding has two pieces, a little bit about the condition and a little bit about how it's treated. So the more, and I've heard, you know, um, there's several, been several sessions, and that's what I like about this is you go to different sessions and you kind of hear the same thing from a different, uh, different points of view. Uh, but pain education is a starting point for lots of patients, for them to understand what's going on and what role do they have and what have they got and that kind of thing. Then there's thinking, how patients think about pain and themselves and their future and what it means and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, calming, relaxation-ish kind of skills is an important skill. Balancing is what my name for a general, there's several things within balancing, but it's trying to get into some habits that work for you. Um, sleep, you know, getting the, an appropriate amount of sleep and not staying up all night and sleep until noon the next day and missing appointments at the clinic. Um, assertiveness, activity pacing is a huge one of how, where you spend your time and effort. So kind of getting a balanced lifestyle. Probably nutrition is in that same kind of bailiwick, about getting patterns that work for you. And then coping, surprisingly left out of some pain coping book or pain 
you get a pain manual, patient's pain manual, they go over the other things. And coping, what do I do when it hurts? Should I put ice on it, heat on it? I heard you're supposed to alternate heat or ice. With the, that's what they always told me. Um, we go over what can you do besides take an extra pill. They said take it twice a day, but I'm really hurting so bad, so I got up at 2 a.m. and took another Opana ER or morphine ER or whatever. And then they're short on a pill count or whatever. So what can you do for pain besides take another pill or take to bed, lay down and rest, and maybe that'll, that'll go away. So those are the general five skills we're going to go over each one. So understanding, knowing about your pain and treatment. Um, it's true for all healthcare. Cardiology has the same sorts of things of the three-legged stool. Um, how pain works. Most people, you've had much better um, uh, talks about pain education. There was one this morning, Catherine talked here about, uh, or some room, neuroplasticity and pain education. This is how I explain it to people, um, which is probably as dumbed down a version of neuroplasticity and chronic pain as I can get. Most people think they've got a pain generator and that's what's causing their pain. I got a bad ankle and it sends a signal to the brain about how much damage I have. And that's true for acute pain, but it's not true for chronic pain. And if you, you know, that's certainly a consistent message you should be getting out of this is that with chronic pain, you get a lot of central system involvement and it's not just what's the damage out there, whatever it is, spinal or joint or whatever. Now, <clears throat> In terms of peripheral pain generator, we won't say the pain, but the pain generator, I tell people, and it drives David Click crazy because they have you know, much more pain educated. There's this kind of nerve and that kind of nerve and this kind of, okay. From a user perspective, there's three kinds of pain. Nerve, muscle, and joint. Nerve pain, burn and stinging, going down the legs, going down the arms. Organ pain, uh, like uh, you know, gastritis or kidney stones. Um, uh, organ pain, burn pain, nerve pain, all in that same kind of category. Um, and that's one kind of pain. Then there's joint pain, inflammation. It's easier to spell joint. Um, either one joint, you know, shoulder, knee, or all joints, arthritis, osteo or rheumatoid. So there's joint pain, inflammation. And then there's muscle pain, the underappreciated muscle pain. Our healthcare, our Pain, I'll make generalizations that I can try to stand up to. Generally, pain docs focus on nerve pain and joint pain. And muscle pain tends to get left to the side. Here's a muscle relaxer. Oh, you got tight muscles here. Take a muscle relaxer. That's what he had. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. Here's a muscle relaxer. Sure, that'll be, that's what we got. Muscle relaxers, A, are hard. It's hard to find that window of therapeutic effect. They often don't work. You give them too much and they get sleepy. So getting a muscle relaxer to be just enough to really work is kind of hard, or trigger point injections maybe, and those are about the only two other things. But there's a number of things patients can do for muscle pain. Within muscle pain, there's three kinds. There's the spasms. Charlie horses, middle of the night, hop up and down, ouch, 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 hurts a lot. Um, there are knots, myofascial pain, but tightness, knots, you know. Um, and people are often rubbing, and you'll, you know, we do that at conferences all the time. Somebody was doing it earlier, you know, doing that. Um, those are myofascial trigger points that we'll talk about. The other one is, that comes with it is, is referred pain, deep down soreness. A lot of patients will say, I'm just really sore. It's like it's in the bone right there in my forearm or right there in my thigh. And it's not shooting all, all the way down my leg, and it's not in the joint, but it's just deep down achiness soreness. That's referred pain. It comes like it's the muscle right up there in the notch that some of you know what the name is and I don't. 
um, if that's really knotted up, it's going to give you soreness there and there. I had it a few months ago on that side, and I was like, yeah, I'm really sore. Hey, that's what I talk about all the time. I got it right here. Look at that. And it hurts like the hell. Um, but you have deep down soreness with that. So within muscle pain, you get the spasms, you get the knots, and you get the deep down soreness. Okay? This will end, we'll come back there because when you talk about pain coping, what you do to help that, it depends on which kind of pain it is. So like I say, this is the dumbed-down user version. Pain educators have a much better knowledge about what exactly the nerves are and that kind of thing. But like I say, from a user manual perspective, nerve, muscle, joint. And then people can begin to focus on what coping strategy they need based on which kind of pain it is. So there's different kinds of pain generators. Those are the big three. And then we say, look, it's not just a matter of tissue damage. Um, and what I tell people is you got these volume control knobs, and you got maybe six of them, and they regulate or you know, control how much pain your brain is feeling. Okay? There's one in the periphery, there's one in the spinal cord, and there's four in the, in the uh, brain. And they will, you know, if, you have, if they go up, you're going to have a lot more pain. If they go down, you have less pain. And so your pain, how much pain you're feeling is not just from the tissue damage, but it's from all these volume control knobs. Like I say, Catherine did a whole lot better job, uh, you know, intellectually going over that. But for our patients, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, volume control knobs, got it. Um, but any kind of, and there's probably other better analogies, but any kind of analogy to use to basically say, there's a lot of other things going on besides tissue damage because people will say, you know, I'm damaged. Have you seen, you know, how bad my back is? I've got the worst back anybody's ever seen. You know, the doctor said this will never heal an ear. And I always, you know, hate it when doctors say, oh, and you're going to be in a wheelchair in five years or 10 years or 20 years. And then they get that in their brain and they're just waiting to be in a wheelchair. Um, and so how they think about it is a, is a big deal. But how much pain they're feeling has modulators in there, and it's not just about tissue damage. Um, and then if they look unconvinced, I go over some examples like phantom limb pain. Okay, how does your foot hurt when you don't have a foot? You know, there's more to it than, than just tissue damage causing pain. Uh, pain after a total knee replacement. You, gotta, you know, your knee still hurts. They put in a new knee. How is it your knee hurts when you have a metal knee and there's no nerves in there? CRPS, the mysterious disease of all, and you're mirroring. You know, they injure one hand and it gets hot and red, and then six months, a year later, then their other hand hurts. How, how would that be? To try to give patients some examples of there's more to it than just tissue damage. Um, and people with diff the same tissue damage are going to experience pain in different sorts of ways. So what I tell people, I say you, but this is when I'm talking to patients, your pain is not, there should be a knot in there, I knew there was an edit in there, yours is not simply a reflection of tissue damage. It's a signal that's altered by several factors. What that means for, for the treatment relationship is we can help your pain. We can't fix you. If you could be fixed, you'd be someplace else. You'd be at the orthopedist or the neurosurgeon or somebody else. You got sent to a pain clinic, talking for pain specialists, because nobody could fix you. But that doesn't mean you can't be better. You can be better because we know how to adjust those volume knobs. Actually, several of, most of those knobs are in the patient's hands and in the patient's control. But if we educate you about that, you can learn how to turn your volume control knobs so that you have less pain. So you can be better even though we can't fix you. And that tries to unlink that, you know, fix me, fix me kind of thing. Um, so... Um, 
So it's important for us to remember that kind of thing. Uh, it's easy to get into what's the right diagnosis. Is this ridiculous? Is this stenosis, whatever, what level is this? And there's psychological modulators are central to the pain experience. And they're at play no matter what, you know, whether you're an interventional person or not. And so psychology is part of what you're dealing with sitting there. Uh, and whether it's history of abuse and trauma, we'll go back and just kind of name I don't know that I named some of those, but um, pain gates, there's emotions, anger, you know, what I do is go over, per actually peripheral, we'll stop there, peripheral modulation, I say, yeah, you rub your arm. You know, if you have pain down the leg, you just do this a lot, right? And they go, yeah, I do that all the time. You know, I wear myself out. Yeah, okay, and, you know, Barbara will get it because it's, you know, technically it's not correct, but this is the way I say it. Rub nerves go to the brain faster than sting nerves, and they have special names, but I don't do that. Just rub nerves go to the brain faster than sting nerves, and if you rub a sting in pain, it feels better. That's why we all, somebody comes up and punches you, everybody does the same thing. Ow, what'd you do that for? Well, why do we do that? I don't know, feels better. Yeah, why? Well, because rub nerves go to the brain faster than sting nerves, and I actually use that to try to talk people into spinal cord stimulators because they're in my office trying to figure out whether to take an MMPI or not. And I'm like, okay, listen, this is how it works. If you stimulate those nerves and give it kind of a rub sensation, you're going to have a lot less pain. And so that's why that works. You've been doing this for years. So even though it sounds weird to put a battery in your back and have these wires in there, it's basically it's an electronic version of doing this all the time, except you've got a battery doing it instead of that. It's almost like an electric chair that you can plug in. It's like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound so bad, you know get a battery to do what I've been doing for years anyway. So there's peripheral modulators that they do all the time. Spinal, in the spinal cord, there's pain gates. If you're angry, if you're sad, if you're anxious, it's going to make your pain go up. And we go over the, if the gates are open, you're going to get a really strong signal to the brain. If the gates are closed, you're going to get a really weak signal to the brain. It's going to inhibit that somewhat. Um, so that's why we might think about an antidepressant and why your marriage might come up and why... If you, you know, and if patients don't believe you, say, look, remember the last time you got angry? Your pain went through the roof, right? Yeah. Well, that's why. It's called pain gates. So there's ways to, we can work with that to help decrease your pain if you know that that's going on. Attention and focus. If you're focused on the pain, it's going to make a really strong signal. If you're focused on something else, it's going to make a weak signal. So how much you think about your pain and focus on it is a volume control knob begin to set the stage for quit focusing on your pain all the time because it's making it worse. Um, thoughts about self, thoughts about pain, you know, being unhappy, how they think about it, the meaning of it, did they get injured by somebody else, that plays a factor and also plays a factor in, in beliefs. Beth Darnall's got some good examples in her first book about crazy uh, uh, research studies where they would give people uh, opiates and not tell them. And they'd say, okay, we're about to give you, you know, we're not giving you any opiates now. How, what's your pain? They're like, oh, it's killing me. And they're filling them up full of morphine. And then they say, okay, we're going to, you know, now we're going to turn on the morphine. And they, foe, turn this on, you know, say, okay, how's that? Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling better now. Well, nothing changed, but they thought it was, so they did. Now they're like, okay, we're going to turn it off. So they turn it off, except they don't. They just keep it going. It's like, oh, man, my pain's back now that you've turned that off. Your beliefs about what's going on have a huge impact on how much pain you're feeling. Um, so that's why you have to kind of talk up. If you're introducing a new medicine, you know, their expectations about what's going to happen have a big factor. No, I've failed everything. Everything doesn't work. Oxycodone works, but everything else has failed. 
Um, so beliefs are a big factor. History of pain, the longer somebody has pain, the more it kind of burns a track in the brain and kind of hangs in there. And then the history of trauma. I say, look, psychology, trauma-wise, the emotional center is right next to the pain perception center. And if you've been traumatized and had trauma in your life, it makes that area of the brain much more sensitive, so it's easier to have chronic pain if you've had a history of trauma. So that's why all these factors play in together. For some people, I go over that more than others because some people kind of want to hear that. Other people are like, no, no, don't go there. But those are a variety of volume control knobs and places where we are intervening with that. So the more they have some idea of that, the better. So understanding that about the patients and realizing that those are in play and you know, having some compassion for your pain in the butt patient that's, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that, that there's probably been some emotional trauma. They don't have so many, much self-efficacy a belief that they can control their lives. Um, and so that's where they're coming from, and they're coming to you with that state, and then you've got to try to figure out what's going on. Um, so that's a, the basics of understanding of what I go over, the different kinds of pain, and that there's things that patients can do, and we can help them be better even though we're not fixing them. And they would, everybody wants a fix. Fix me. Okay, what's your second choice? sometimes too sarcastically say to patients, um, we're not going to fix you, but we can make you better. Uh, thinking, you, you're going to hear about cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance therapy, uh, catastrophizing. Beth talked a lot about it uh, earlier this morning. Catastrophizing is focusing on the negatives, and you know, often the beliefs are not true. That's why it's catastrophizing. Is it's a half-truth or an old truth. Kind of one often example is, you know, yeah, the doctor told me not to lift five pounds, said it's just going to be awful. Okay, when did they tell you that? It was right after surgery. How long was your surgery? Six years ago. Okay, well, okay, it's a different situation now, but people hang on to beliefs like that. So maybe it's an old belief that's not true anymore, or it's a half-truth, you know, I can't do anything. Well, okay, let's talk about what you can do and what you can't do. It's probably that you can do some things. Um, outcomes in surgery, Beth mentioned this, outcomes in surgery and outcomes in chronic pain treatment are more tied to catastrophizing than anything else, including tissue damage. You can have a multi-level fusion, but how much they're catastrophizing is going to predict how well they do from lumbar surgery. Um, so if there's one thing to do. Now the problem is, well, examples, this pain is awful. You've heard this. People say this all the time. My pain's awful. I can't stand it anymore. My pain's a 10 out of 10. I had two people last week tell me that. My pain's a 10 out of 10, and they stay with a straight face. And I just want to, we used to have a physician that would come up beside him and pinch him. Oh, you're a 10 out of 10? Ow, what did you do that for? Well, I guess you're not a 10, you know, because you wouldn't have felt that if you were a 10. A mean way to make a point. But, you know, they just say, I'm a 10 out of 10, and, you know, I went fishing yesterday. So we have to work on what a 10 is. Or I'm a 15. One person said they were a Google alien or something like that. They just come up with words. Um, there's something wrong with me that nobody discovered. I know there's something wrong. I know there's, you know there's a disc. There's a something. I don't care what my MRI says. I know there's something wrong. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. I should be able to do more. Shoulds are a huge uh, thing. I should be able to do this. I should, it shouldn't take me three hours to clean the kitchen. Uh, and my body's very damaged, you know. I'm basically palliative care. Just just load me up with morphine. I'll see and and because uh, you know that that surgeon told me he'd never seen a back as bad as mine. You know, uh, for all those many years. Um, there was one poor girl that was like 18, I think, 
and she went to, I think it was a primary care, and the primary care said, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're disabled. You know, your back is terrible. And she, okay, she was disabled. And I saw her when she was like 42, and she's just been disabled ever since she was 18. And you look at her MRI, it's really not that bad. They never did back surgery. They never did anything else. But he just stuck it in her brain. You're disabled. Your back is terrible. And, you know, and she's been that way ever since. Um, so people get it in their head of, I'm damaged. I was told that by an authority, so it must be true. So people get these thoughts and hang on to them. Now, it's the most important one. It's the hardest one to treat. And it's, you know, it's pretty much impossible for me to give you some pearls of wisdom, so now you're going to so, go successfully treat catastrophizing. Um, that's why rehab, why I think rehab programs, the traditional four-week, five-week inpatient, six hours a day kind of pain rehab programs worked is because you can work on thoughts and catastrophizing because you've got a lot of hours to do it. That's why substance abuse programs have 28 days, or traditionally before insurance came along. Um, you had a lot of time and intensity to work on thinking because you don't just, we don't change our thinking in brief conversations with somebody. It takes some intensity and focus and work. Um, even when we're motivated, it takes some practice. So getting somebody to think about their, uh, how they think and changing their thinking is, is real difficult. Um, so in general, like say, for you to know, at least you can identify catastrophizing and go, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. And Beth Darnall and I have talked to saying catastrophizing is a terrible word. It, it's, it sort of blames the victim. It's, I, it's very long. It's hard, you know, it's hard to say. It's what? You know, you can't spell it. Um, and it, it sort of blames the victim, but nobody can figure out a better word. Actually, in, in AA, they call it stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. Um, but it's you know not thinking appropriately or not thinking helpful with your with your lives. But it's so catastrophizing is the word we've got. So shoulds. There's a famous psychiatrist that said, "Don't should all over yourself. You shouldn't all over yourself. Quit shouldn't all over yourself. Um, no shoulds allowed. Um, shoulds are designed for misery. Shoulds make people misery miserable. Um, I should be able to do more. They should understand me. The doctor should find a way to treat me." People should see that I'm in pain and adapt their ways to me. Um, shoulds are not helpful for the patient. And so, because it's, you know, the world ought to be a certain way and it's not. So the more you can kind of get away from the shoulds, because shoulds cause misery. And if you hear shoulds coming out of a patient's mouth, you know, it's going to be associated with life's not fair, I don't like it, people are bad, you know, the, life is not fair. The drunk driver was not fair, and it just, like I say, causes misery. You, you know when somebody's moving forward, when you move from the why me or woe is me, which is the place to start, where everybody starts, to what now. That's what you want patients to be saying to themselves is, where do I go from here? What can I do? Okay, I can't work. Do I spend some time with the grandkids? How many days a week can I watch them? Um, do I volunteer? Do I, you know... What am I going to do besides sit in the recliner and watch TV? Um, so what now is what you want, you know, where, what can I do is what you want patients to be getting to. Uh, one lady we interviewed, we interviewed a number of successful chronic pain patients, and they said, it took me two or three years to even begin to answer that, to ask that question, and then took several years of that to figure out what I could do. But it, it takes a while to move out of that, I want to be fixed, um, I hate this, this is awful, to, okay, where do we go from here? I've often thought spinal cord injury people 
have it better because they can get out of there. They're like, okay, it's done, let's move on. The damage is very visible and real and they're with, uh, in rehab programs, they're with a lot of people in a similar situation. Chronic pain's more invisible and it's hard to mentally get to that, yes, I'm damaged, I'm not gonna be 100%, I'm not gonna be my old self. Can be better, but can't be my old self. Uh, the importance of gratitude. What are the nuclear option for gratitude is Nick Vujicic. Um, if you want the quick version of gratitude, life without limbs, if you know about Nick. Uh, Nick was Australian, born without arms or legs. Um, thought about suicide when he was a kid um, at 16 and got through that phase. And finally said around teenagehood, what do I do? You know, what's a guy going to do with no arms and no legs? And became an international speaker. And now he's written several books. He's married. He's had a child. Lives in Southern California, I think. Um, but there's tons of YouTube videos with Nick, and, and it brings instant gratitude because you watch Nick, you know, hop up on the stage or something. It's like, okay, I'm not trading. There, you know, pain patients can be completely miserable, but if you, I don't know that any of them will say, oh, yeah, I'd rather be Nick. No, it's like, okay, there's a, there's a place I don't want to be, so gratitude for what I do have. I can move and that kind of thing. So if, if you or anybody you know is feeling low, get some gratitude, you know, see some uh, YouTube videos of Nick. But I have to always write it down for people because people don't know how to spell it, and that's hard to find uh, if you do that. Okay, calming. How to calm down. Like I say, this is the fast-forward version of, of skills. Um, decreasing stress. You know, breath is the key. But before I say more, we'll do this. Okay, so what I'm going to do is say go. And when I say go, what I want you to do is count your breaths. Count each in-breath. That's one. That's two. That's three. People sometimes count one, two, three, and it gets all good. You count the in-breaths for 30 seconds, okay? And then we'll talk about why in the world we would do this. Now I'll get my handy-dandy stopwatch here. Okay, so we're going to do that for 30 seconds. Okay, you ready? Count your breaths. Okay, make a note of that in your mental note. Write it down, whatever you need to do. Okay. You got the fight-flight response. Pain is an alarm system, and it means danger. And so the natural body reaction is to run from it or fight it. And so your blood pressure goes up. All kinds of autonomic nervous system kinds of things happen. Breath is the only one that's both involuntary and voluntary. You can do something with breath. You can't do something directly with your blood pressure, but you can with breathing. So breathing is the key into that system to try to slow everything down. Breathing 101 that I never got taught in school is um, what most adults do to breathe is raise their shoulders. If I say take a deep breath, you go, take a deep breath. And it's like, okay, take a deep breath. And what adults do is they raise their shoulders, makes a vacuum about right there, sucks air in, compress it, blow air out. And we're all surviving doing breathing like that. That's not what we're supposed to be doing, but that's what we do. That's not the original design. How we're originally designed to breathe is not by raising the shoulders but lowering the diaphragm. Go find a small child that you're legally able to be around and, and watch them breathe, and their little belly goes in and out. Their shoulders don't ever move. 
I, tell, I used to tell people, go find a small child, and they did. And it was like, okay, no, you don't go to the mall and say, hey, you know, it's just, you know, don't do that. Um, <clears throat> so they're little, the little uh, children, their belly goes in and out. Okay, they're breathing not by doing this, but by doing this. Diaphragm's big old muscle under the lungs, drops down, pooches everything out. So, and it's odd, because breathing in, your belly goes out. Breathing out, your belly goes in. I always have to think about that, because it seems like backwards. But your breathing will go, you know, that's breathing in, and that's breathing out. What happens is we're all breathing with our diaphragm, and then we stand up and we get pants and belts on, and, and then we're all told, don't let your belly stick out. You look fat and nobody will like you. So we all kind of hold it in, and everybody, by the time they get out of high school, shoulder breathers. When they enter school, they're belly breathers. I say belly because I can't spell diaphragm. But you're breathing with your belly, then you're breathing with your shoulders by the time you get out of high school, which is works. But when you breathe with your diaphragm, the vacuum that's made is at the bottom of your lungs. So it sucks air all the way to the bottom of your lungs. So you get a whole lungful of air when you're breathing with your belly instead of a half a lungful of air when you're breathing with your chest. Um, the, the adults that know this are singers and musicians. Okay? If you've been in a choir, they're like, you know, breathe with your belly, sing with your belly. You get more air, you can sing longer and louder if you're breathing with your diaphragm. But those are the only people that tend to know that. So diaphragm breathing will slow your breathing down. You get a whole lungful of air, get more air, you can slow your breathing down that way. So diaphragmatic breathing is the entry into that, and most people don't know. If you say to your patient, take a deep breath, they go, okay, you know, and it, A, it tightens up everything that they're already pretty tight at. So diaphragm breathing slows everything down. So you lay down. If somebody can lay down, you lay down, and you can put your hand on your belly or a book on your belly. If you're laying down, you can't move your shoulders as much, and it kind of prods you into diaphragmatic breathing. So you lay down, and you breathe in with your belly, and then you breathe out, and then you wait because you're getting a lot more air, so you can wait till you need a big breath. Still not yet, still not yet, okay. And then you take a deep breath with your belly button. The Chinese talk about breathing with your belly button, and then you take it out. That slows your breathing down, but you're still getting the same amount of air. Psychologists made lots of money doing relaxation training in eight weeks, you need eight weeks, 12 weeks, come back and see me again for an hour and we'll go over this whole thing. Yeah, it doesn't take that much because we're going to find out. So with that brief introduction, um, now I'm going to say go. Sit there and breathe with your belly, um, as they say, and count your breaths this time and see what happens. Don't freak yourself out. Oh, i got to do it. Just you know, calm down and just breathe with your belly button for 30 seconds and count your breaths, okay? In five seconds, we'll do that. Okay, you ready? Count your breaths. Okay, now you got that number. So how many of you, the second number was higher or more than the first number? About three of you. How many of you it was the same both times? About eight or nine of you, ten. How many of you the second number was lower? Far and away the winner. Good, I even put that in there, hoping that, that the results would be that way. Right. Now where we're headed for is 
you might be a nurse practitioner, physical therapist, PA, somebody. You can teach relaxation. That's what you do. You know, you go over belly breathing, go over and teach them, and they're going to wind themselves down. So you don't have to say, you know, oh, this person's wound up, send them for anxiety treatment to psychologists. They can't get in there anyway. You can teach the basic relaxation kind of thing. Now, there's two pieces to relaxation. One is decreased stress. The other is kicking off the endorphin response, kicking off the relaxation response. Diaphragmatic breathing is going to decrease stress, but that's not relaxation. That's decreasing stress. So you got decreasing stress, and then you got relaxation. Relaxation is triggered by getting your mind on one thing. Usually our minds are bouncing all over the place and we're thinking about three things and you got a song stuck in your head at the same time and all kinds of stuff's going on. Um, so there's tight, and there's a number of things that will teach about how to have your mind and settled in one thing. There's um, Tai Chi and yoga and breathing. Um, if you go to the beach and you're just, you know, thinking about the waves and not thinking about anything else, um, you know, for us you go to the mountains and watch the mountain stream. Um, but it's not just going there because, like, you know, I go to the beach and the waves are going and I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting sunburned and I got sand flies all over me and is it time to eat? And, you know, just because you're in a nature setting doesn't mean you're going to kick off the relaxation response. You need to have something to hold that thought in there. And a lot of, especially guys, do activity-related stuff, uh, being in the, wor in the workshop. They get in an, in an activity and they're focused on it. If you've ever lost track of time, you probably were kicking off the relaxation response and your mind was off because you were focused on one thing. So it can be, a, that's the runner's high. It doesn't come from running. It comes from not thinking about anything else because you're so tired you can't think about anything else. Um, so the Herbert Benson method, he hates it when you call it the Herbert Benson method. He's like, uh, but we call it the Benson method. You pick a, and, and this, I like this because you don't have to get a CD. You don't have to have internet access. You don't have to download anything, get a tape. People don't use tapes anymore, but get anything like that. Uh, you say, look, you get a, a, a word or a prayer or a phrase, something fairly short and simple, and you repeat it in your mind with each breath, okay? And you just repeat it, and you focus on it. You can imagine seeing it on a screen or hearing it, and you repeat it. Your mind's going to wander. Everybody's does. Mine does. You know, it wanders off, and you go, oh, it's wandered off and you come back to the word, prayer, phrase. What happens is we usually wander off. It's like, I can't do this right now. i got so many things going on. I'll do it later, and we never do it later. So your mind wanders off, you bring it back. Wanders off over here, you bring it back. Okay? So you don't try to do it well. You just do that. And that's the Benson method of, tech, of uh, that. Mindfulness is that uh, very much the same sort of thing. Mindfulness-based mindfulness stress reduction, MBSR. Uh, a lot of people do that. We have, you know, there's a big mindfulness community in Knoxville, and they're all very protective, I find. You know, if we talked about mindfulness um, program at our clinic, and it was like, oh, well, okay, our psychologist can maybe start doing mindfulness. No, no. It takes years of practice. You really need to be trained, you know, get to find somebody to work with you. And, and, you know, it's very much kind of a club entry sort of thing because they really want it to be done right. Um, but then that excludes how many people can be doing that. Traditionally, MBSR's eight-week course with nightly practice, our physician, lead physician, uh, signed up for it. He and his wife did MBSR. You know, there was a lot of dropouts. I was a dropout. Lots of people are dropouts. Um, what you find, though, Faddle Sedan at White Forest has found he put people in a functional MRI, the old undergraduate students, where they gave them pain. I think it was a heat source on there. Uh, did it pre-test, pre you know, looked at their brain while they're having pain. Then he had, 
And what he was doing, what he admits, is that he didn't want to do an eight-week course. He knew he was not going to have enough subjects if he said, let me study people in an MBSR course for eight weeks. So he said three 20-minute sessions. 20 minutes, you do this mindfulness thing three times, 20 minutes. That's all you got to do. And then he studied them afterwards. And what he found is he could see the functional changes in the brain from doing that. So the, the brain responded less to pain after doing that. What I think he invented was the short course, the brief therapy course for MBSR. You know, it, it works for research, but it also is a great, you know, so you don't have to have eight-week courses. All you got to do is have the patient do it three times for 20 minutes, and you're going to do that. Especially for centrally mediated pain like CRPS and other things, wow, you can see the brain change with that. You can rewire your brain, and it doesn't take eight weeks of something to do. Three 20-minute sessions. Okay, much more doable to do with that. And we can see that it rewires the brain because we can see its impact. Balancing. General thing, there's lots of things in here. There's sleep hygiene, saying no, time management. The biggest is t activity pacing. There's the downward cycle. You have an injury, you hold still, you're worried about it, you kind of, you know, take to bed for a little while, which is a natural thing to do if anybody gets hurt. You take it easy for a few days. But if that sets up and continues, then you're still in bed, and then you're unhappy, and then you've got inflammation and muscle spasm, and you restrict your movement, and then your muscles start to get weak because you're not moving, and then you get more angry and frustrated, and then people are yelling at you, and your relationships are bad, and, and you just kind of spiral downward. Um, a lot of people in our area say, I took to bed, and she took to bed 10 years ago and never got up. You know, it was rheumatoid arthritis, and she basically doesn't do anything. And so a lot of our patients take to the recliner. You know, nobody sleeps in their bed. They all sleep in the recliner, and that's where they, all night long, they're there in the recliner tossing and turning, and then all day long they're watching TV from the recliner. Um, now, the other pattern that we see that I don't see in the literature as much, but I hear patients talk about it all the time, is what I call Groundhog Day. I can do this. I'm just going to go out and push through it, and they go out, especially on weekends, and do far too much, flare themselves up. They're in the garden for four or five hours, and they get this big old stress response, and they got muscle inflammation, and spasms, and they say, you know, I, sh you know, I don't know why it's taken me this long to get the garden. I used to be able to do the garden in that long. Um, and then they come in on Monday morning and ask for more breakthrough pain medication because they're having a flare-up. And then gradually it tones down over time after three or four or five days or a week. And then they go out and do the same thing again. Say, I'm going to push through this. I learned when I was playing football that I ought to push through it, you know, and not let this stuff get me down. And they just activate the pain system over and over again. And it doesn't help. It just makes the central process hang on to it a lot more. So that's the, the other one. What we want people to do is do some. Set a reasonable goal for where you're at. If you haven't done anything, then five minutes or three minutes, uh, whether it's walking or activities or dishes or whatever. You go to the edge of the pain. Some people talk about kind of going around the edges of it. But you feel pain. You don't run away from it but you don't try to push your way through it. You feel it, you tolerate it, have it a little bit, and then you back off and you go rest and you put some ice on it or heat on it or something, and you have less stress, less inflammation. The more you do that a little bit at a time, you build up muscle strength, you build up tolerance to the pain, and you can do a little more, a little more, a little more. Never back to 100%, but you can do more, kind of just doing it. Time. So you need to figure out where the patient's at activity-wise and have them do just a little more and a little more, setting reasonable goals instead of going out and doing it like they used to. Um, so we just tell people, be a turtle. Go be a turtle. It's the tortoise and the hare story. Slow and steady wins the race. Um, 
And we actually give people turtles sometime. Here, go be a turtle. Put this, it's a magnet. Put it on your refrigerator. Be a turtle. Um, it's not a marathon. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So it's pacing. It's activity pacing. There's uptime and downtime, how much you do, how much you back off, how much you do, how much you back off. If you talk to any successful pain patient, they're going to say, I do a little bit at a time. I do a little bit and I back off and then I rest a bit. And then I do a little bit and I back off. And that's what people need to be doing. They just have to figure out what their uptime is, how long is their uptime, how long is their downtime. Um, you're on an energy budget, and saying no is an important skill for pain patients. They tend to be an easy target for family. Hey, you're not doing anything. You're not working. Can you watch the kids? You know, can you drive me over here? Um, and then people say, okay, let's have a to-do list. You know, what things do you want to do today? And we all make these little to-do lists. What we all don't do and what pain patients don't do is put family interaction on the to-do list. Pay attention to kids when they come home and ask them how their day was. Pay attention to the spouse when they come home and ask them how their day was. That takes energy and it takes time. And if you spent all day cleaning and the spouse comes in, you're likely to just say, good, you watch the kids, I'm hurting, I'm going to bed. And there's no quality time, no interaction. If you ask people why they love each other or why they got together, they're like, well, he paid attention to me, he really loved me. Yeah, well, that takes energy and time, and you don't have to be throwing a ball with a kid to show them that you love them. So paying attention to people ought to be on the to-do list and having interaction where you say, how was your day? How's that ugly boss of yours? Is he still giving you a hard time? And show an interest in their life. So having that on the to-do list because um, it takes time. Coping. Uh, we're back to nerve pain, joint pain, muscle pain. What kind of pain is it and what can I do to make it better? Nerve pain. There's not a whole lot to do for nerve pain. People kind of rub it a little bit sometimes. That's about it. Nerve pain's tough for the self-care end of things. Joint pain, ice, if it's inflamed, put ice on it. If it's swelling up, you put ice on it. And we talk about putting salt or alcohol in with the ice cubes so that it makes kind of a slush, so that slush is easier to get over a joint than just a bunch of clunky ice cubes. Um, and then there's muscle pain. There's the charley horses, the spasms that you'd put ice on. If it's tight muscles, you put heat on. And usually it's not alternate heat or ice. For, there's very few patients we have that, that actually works. They either have inflammation and they need ice, or it's chronic and they're not having inflammation but they're all tight and they need heat. So heat and massage. Trigger points. They're triggers because if you push on them, they pop open. And that's why people are rubbing and all this kind of stuff. We were talking about it earlier. They're often in the shoulders and the back and you can't reach them. There are things that work with that. You can, what you can do is just get a tennis ball and a sock and hold it over your back and kind of rub it that way. Or one lady bought a, a doorknob and put it in her living room and just installed it five feet up in her thing so she could lean up against it every night and kind of get that massage like that. But there are tools for that. There's a Theracane, which is a green thing like that, and there's a Back Buddy, which is an S-shaped thing like that, where you can actually reach those things. I've got three of them. The staff are always stealing the other two, and I've got to hang on to one. And every time I do a class, I've got to frisk all the patients leaving to make sure nobody steals the other one that i got because um, people love it. And they're like, oh, and they almost, you know, it's almost like you want to leave them alone. They just use it, and they're like, oh. Well, it's like, okay, well, let's put a drape over you because this is getting a little intense over there. So most every pain, even if they have radicular pain, they're tight, they, they've got a lot of tension because they've got a lot of pain, and so they get shoulder and neck problems up in there just because they've got a lot of muscle tension. So point massage and how they can deal with that 
can help a lot. You're not going to maybe help their radicular pain with that kind of thing, but you're going to help the, they can do a lot for their muscle pain and their trigger points rather than just wait for a better, better muscle relaxer or beg for soma like all of our people do. Distraction is a key tool. When I say, what's the best pain medicine there is out there? Is it morphine? Is it fentanyl? Is it this? Is that? No. The best pain, the best analgesic is distraction. Okay? And you can go back to the burn units. What do they do on burn units? Most of the high-class burn units, they use virtual reality. They use a game. They put a thing on you, and you're distracted, and you're not there. And it works better. The reason they use virtual reality is because it works better than morphine. They want to do the best thing for it. Um, so all patients should have a plan, a coping plan, of what do I do if I have tight muscles? What do I do for this? And, and distraction needs to be on there. You'll see them in the lobby. They'll have their little phones out, and they'll be playing games and doing this and that and the other thing. The only downside, the only side effect to distraction is that if you're doing something, you tend to hold still, and then you're really tight. You get distracted, and your kind of mind wanders, and two hours later, you're stiff as a board. Um, so you have to almost set a kitchen timer to kind of stop and stretch a little bit from doing that. Um, but distraction is a key variable, and if you like distraction, come to the talk I'm going to do tomorrow and Saturday on virtual reality because it's, it's distraction on steroids. It's like, whoa. We, we have a new thing on our hands in terms of things that help with pain. Um, so understanding, thinking, calming, balancing. Um, i got to keep you all on time. Um, <clears throat> now, teaching, I'm just going to tell you as we go through in the two minutes I've got less. Access is a problem. Send them to the pain psychologist. You don't have a pain psychologist. What are you going to do? The pain psychologist is busy doing stimulator evaluations anyway and doesn't have time to do those kind of things. Um, we tried the old six-week course. People don't show up. You know, then the docs are trying to mandate it, and then they're in a fight. Well, my brother was sick. You know, doc, give me another chance. We're going to cut your morphine if you don't go see the psychologist. Well, and they go around and around. So the more you mandate, the more interaction problems you're going to have with that. So we said, okay, one session. You can make one session. Call it Pain Pearls, terrible name. I wish we had a different name. Um, one session, two hours. We go over it, and we go over those five skills, and we go over the skills, a little bit of education, about 20 minutes on each one of those. It looks like it decreases catastrophizing, um, and we're getting to where we're, it's almost going to be something that every patient would need because almost every patient needs pain education skills. When we asked people, do you think it helped, 80, 90 percent said, yes, it helped. Well, that's an incredibly high number for pain patients that don't think anything helped. Um, I'll give you the, the last one. I like the, the last quote with this. Um, I believe that any doctor's office prescribing any pain medicine should, by law, require classes such as this. People with chronic pain have the right to be educated as to options we have to not only pain medication, but pain education. Wow. You know, Kevin Zakharoff should have been saying that the, the first night. Yeah, that's what, so patients love it. Um, use handouts. Pain patients don't sleep well. Their memory's out the window. They can't remember a thing. They're going to say that's a great group, and they're going to forget it two days later. You need to also have simple concepts, fancy, let's go over what stenosis is. They don't know that kind of stuff. So simple words, simple concepts. And so if you're not a pain psychologist, you can integrate these skills into your sessions, and you can kind of think wow, this person's all flared up, I need to be working on relaxation skills because um, they're really tense and anxious. They're flared up because they did too much. Okay, let's talk about balancing and activity pacing. They're all flared up and they got muscle tension. Let's talk about trigger point massage and point massage and stuff they can do them, themselves. 
um, they're all flared up and they're thinking about neurosurgery. Well, let's talk about pain and chronic pain and pain generators and maybe it's, there's volume control knobs going off in there and it's not another disc. Um, so, there you go, we're at time. Think about being a certified pain educator as a way to get these concepts away to people. There's a booth out there about being a pain educator. You can learn more about that, but it'll help you communicate and teach these skills. Thank you very much.